Hello and welcome to The Planet Today, where we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. Today's Friday, May 5th, 2023. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with co-host and producer. That's weird. I usually say producer and co-host. Nick Janusa. <laughs> Nick, how's it going today? Matt, it's going pretty good, my man. We are just blowing up on TikTok right now. <laughs> yeah, finally went viral. Also, I, I, it's, it's very rare for me to like live edit myself, but I feel like I always say producer and co-host and that time just kind of... Co-host and producer weird. just rolled off the tongue tonight. You know what? It's a, it's a May 5th thing. What are you going to do? <laughs> Question for you. Was it goat cheese that you're not a fan of? I know you're a big cheese guy. Yeah, I don't like goat cheese. Okay, don't like goat try. cheese and I don't like... Um, what's the other one? Not feta. I like feta. Blue feta cheese. Rocks. Can't can't do blue cheese. Yeah. Blue cheese is bad. Gorgonzola bad. I love goat cheese, um, but I just got a vanilla blueberry goat cheese. Ooh. So, what would you put that on? Yeah. It was like a little, I was doing Christini. Oh, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. That, that actually sounds okay. Yeah. It was good. Hey, if you're new here, sometimes we just kind of hang out, have some fun in the beginning and then we roll into a really fun show. So let's do that now. Time for our quick hits for the week. And the first one is by Reuters, where Ron Busso and Susanna Tweedale write, Shell pulls out of large carbon capture project in Northern England. Shell announced it would no longer be participating in the Northern Endurance Partnership, which is one of Britain's largest carbon capture and storage projects. The company said after a review of its strategy and portfolio, it's going to focus on the Acorn Carbon Capture Project, which is in Scotland. An official statement from Shell says that it remains committed to helping the British government realize its ambition for four carbon capture projects by 2030. Britain's national grid has also pulled out of the project. Both companies have given up their equity holdings in the project, which is now led by British Petroleum, or BP. The project aims to develop infrastructure that can transport and store roughly 20 million tons of carbon dioxide emissions per year. So here's the thing for me. This is disappointing on two fronts, and the first is just financing, you know, Shell has all of the money in the world. Even if this project wasn't going to turn out to be like this huge moneymaker financial gold mine, yeah. they're going to be fine. So I think that, you know, for a company that says they're committed to helping develop carbon capture projects, they can prove that by sticking around for this one and not just working in those projects that are going to be those big money earners. My next issue is more just like carbon capture with Shell in general is their entire stance has been in order to combat climate change, we don't need to stop using fossil fuels. We need carbon capture. On the one hand, that's just not true. But on the other hand, if they do believe that, then you have to commit to it. Yeah, this is a frustrating one because Shell is just like constantly dipping their toes in and out of like, oh, you know, we're trying to be better and we're trying to, you know, improve ourselves and and we care about the environment. And then like, on the other hand, they just do all this other stuff that's completely counteracting everything they do. And it's very hypocritical. Um, so yeah, it, it'd be nice to have just like a firm 
stance on being solid in in fighting climate change. Yeah, and it's also been frustrating how they've kind of like moved the goalposts time and time again where you know, originally it was climate change isn't happening and then it's, well, it's happening, but we didn't cause it. And by we, I mean like human society. And then it's, well, it's happening and we're contributing to it, but it's not just the fault of fossil fuels. Come on, you love us, you need us. And now it's, we can do this. We just need carbon (laughs) capture. And now all of a sudden, like they're not even backing that. So I think this is a really good case study in just, they're going to take what we give them. So we can't really allow this, you know, we can't yes. not give them for, for lack of a better term. We can't not give them shit for this. You know, this is the sort of stuff where like we as a society need to be vocal about stay in this commitment. Yeah. You know, if, if you really care about carbon capture, go for it. And the thing that I would like to add is just, it's really important to remember that there's no one just silver bullet golden solution to fighting climate change. It's going to take carbon capture as like a piece of the puzzle, but it's also going to take ramping up renewables, increasing the market share of electric vehicles, electrification of our heating systems. All of those things go into it. So Shell isn't necessarily doing this right now, but anytime somebody says, we don't need to worry about X, it's just carbon capture that really matters that's just disingenuous and that's kind of what i meant before by saying like on the one hand it's wrong to say we just need carbon capture yeah we do it's part of it but it's costly right now it's inefficient we need more research and development going into it to make carbon capture better but until then you know we we can't act like it's just gonna solve everything and Mm -hmm. even when it does get better we're still gonna need all of those things I just mentioned. Exactly. It's like we say all the time on the show, it's a multifaceted approach Mm -hmm. and it's not one golden ticket, like you said, to solving climate change. And don't let up on your policymakers. That's the other thing. All right. Our next story is by Jeff Amy of the Associated Press who writes, fourth reactor at Georgia nuclear plant completes test phase. All right. Speaking of carbon-free pieces of the puzzle to fighting climate change, we have a quick story for you here. A fourth nuclear reactor at Plant Vogtel, which is southeast of Augusta, Georgia, has completed its testing phase. That means that it's now ready to start loading radioactive fuel once it gets approval from the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Southern Co. said it plans to start loading between July and October, with operation coming sometime between December and next March. Reactors 3 and 4 at Plant Vogtel are the first new reactors built from scratch in decades in the U.S. after initial approval back in 2009. The third reactor of the site has already been loaded and begun producing electricity. Yeah, I mean, this is exciting news for me. Say what you want about nuclear. I know that there are going to be people who are listening to the show who are very for it. There are going to be people listening to the show who are very against it. You know, nuclear is very polarizing. Mm-hmm. What I will say is the nuclear reactors that we're producing today are vastly, vastly different than the ones that we were producing you know, 40 years ago, all of those nuclear meltdowns that we think of, you know, your Fukushima, that was built on a fault line. So when an earthquake hit and then a tsunami hit, it's going to be impacted. Yeah. When we think of Chernobyl, that was built with very faulty technology and was kind of a rushed job to put it together. So the way that this is being done with oversight from the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, you know, this is by all accounts going to be very safe 
and it's going to produce a ton of clean energy for the state of Georgia. Yeah, 100%. And we've talked a lot about nuclear on this show before, and I feel like our stance was, at least my stance was like, it's good, but like, I don't know what, you know, the whole um, effects of like radioactive waste and what that does and, and all that stuff. But I feel like it's mostly good. It is mostly super cheap. It is super efficient. And some people would even consider us crazy to be going for like wind and solar when we have nuclear. But I think it's like we just said, it's going to take a bunch of different things. Um, there's a lot of pieces to the energy puzzle yeah. and nuclear is definitely one of them. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I would say, you know, just for transparency, my stance has always kind of been, I don't know what nuclear radiation that's decaying is going to look like in a thousand years because we haven't been producing it for a thousand years. Yes. What I do know is that it's carbon free electricity and we need to be emphasizing carbon free electricity. So until we can completely decarbonize our electric grid with just solar, just wind, just hydro, yeah, all of those renewable sources, then I really want us to emphasize carbon-free. Yeah, definitely. And half-lifes, that's like a thing, right? Half-life. That, that's something from yeah. high school chemistry that I somewhat remember, but don't <laughs> actually remember anything about. So nuclear physicists know the half-life of the radiation. like They know how long it will last. Yeah. Um, we just don't really, I just don't really know what the impacts are going to be as it continues to decay. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm in the same boat. We're not physicists. No, we're not. <laughs> we're not nuclear physicists. This is not uh, a nuclear physicist show. Our next story is from CNN's Helen Regan, who writes almost two thirds of elephant habitat lost across Asia. Study finds. So the, the big three when we talk about wildlife conservation challenges are always habitat loss, poaching, and climate change. And in this case, we're talking about 100 years of deforestation and increasing human development of agricultural land in Asia that have led to almost two-thirds of Asian elephants' habitats disappearing. Asian elephants are found across 13 countries, and in those 13 countries, 64% of their historical forest and grassland habitats have been destroyed in the last 300 some odd years. A team of researchers led by biologist and conservation scientist Sherman De Silva of the University of California, San Diego, found that large-scale habitat loss has also caused more potential conflicts between humans and elephants. The team also notes that this could be avoided with proper planning. The greatest loss of habitat occurred in China and India, where 94 and 86% of habitat was lost between 1700 and 2015, respectively. 1700 is also around the time that European colonization began to ramp up in Asia, which led to increased logging, road building, resource extraction, and deforestation. It also led to more intensive farming practices in areas that would normally be home to this wildlife. Elephants are coming into conflict with humans more as humans continue to encroach on their remaining habitat. This study says that in India's eastern state of Assam, conflict with elephants dramatically increased in the 1980s, which has led to a drop in forest cover below 30 to 40 percent of the landscape. Other factors that have driven increased human-elephant conflict are social and political issues. So as an example of that, the article cites the 2017 Rohingya crisis where thousands of minority Muslim Rohingya people from Myanmar fled to Bangladesh. So now one million people live in an area that was once home to an elephant population. So 
look, here's the thing with conservation issues, right? There's a ton of nuance. It's really easy to come out and say habitat loss is bad because it is. It's really easy to say poaching is bad because it is. But when we talk about human encroachment, you know, it's a lot more gray. Sometimes it's bad. Sometimes we're just developing lands that really should stay pristine. Yeah. In this case, you know, I can't place any blame on a minority group that's fleeing a violent military campaign. Yeah, exactly. It's important to know the whole situation. And when it comes to elephants and human conflict, there's going to be a multitude of factors that that come into play. And honestly, this goes for any sort of wildlife conflict that we're seeing. You know, we talked about this maybe two summers ago in 2021 about how the next pandemic is going to be caused because we're encroaching on more species that we're not used to being in contact with. You know, there's all of these different animals that carry tons of diseases that their body can carry without much issue. But if they jump to humans, it gets bad. Now, elephants don't appear to be one of those species, but it's not like we're just encroaching on elephant territory when we do this. So the the human wildlife conflict, it's bad no matter how you dice it up. You know, it's, it's bad because elephants are losing their habitat. It's bad because we are going to be in contact with more diseases that we might otherwise never have come in contact with. It's bad because the ecosystems lose out on all those ecosystem services that whatever animals are losing their home no longer have anymore. Yeah. And like, there's only so much work that wildlife conservationists can, can do, you know, to counteract this. And sometimes it's just situations lend themselves to, you know, further bad situations and, and you have something that, you know, there's nothing you can do in terms of fixing it, just kind of having to learn to live with it instead and adapting. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And speaking of adapting, you know, elephants are highly adaptable. I want to close this out with a quote from the article from Dr. De Silva who says that they are highly adaptable and long lived. So when they lose their homes, they go searching for new ones. The largest remaining elephant populations in South Asia are in India and Sri Lanka. And something that I want to bring up, I don't have the source for this. I forget when I read this, but farmers in India were having a really hard time with elephants encroaching on their farmlands. And what they found out is elephants don't like the smell of chili powder. (laughs) So they would sprinkle chili powder because they don't like spicy foods around the perimeter of their farms. And all of a sudden the elephants would stop eating their crops. So that's sort of what this article hints at when it says with proper planning, you know, we can avoid some of this. And you're right. There's a ton of work that conservationists have to do to make sure that we limit conflict. The good news is we already know some of the answers. Yeah, no, definitely. I agree. All right. And if you don't know what Asian elephants look like, they have smaller ears and tusks than African elephants, which are my favorite animals because of their large ears and large tusks. We're going to take a break. When we get back, we got two more quick hits for you to send you in your weekend. Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance, daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. 
Ideal for functional use in all settings from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Next up, the Chevy Bolt, GM's popular electric vehicle, is on its way out by NPR's Joe Hernandez. General Motors announced last week that it would stop production of the Chevrolet Bolt by the end of this year as it shifts its focus to production of the GMC Sierra and Chevy Silverado electric vehicles. The Bolt was a popular, small electric vehicle that was launched in 2017 with the intention to be America's most affordable electric vehicle. In recent years, the model has had battery issues that could cause bolts to catch fire. So GM had to do two separate recalls and issue warnings that drivers should park their vehicles outside after charging. GM's announcement that the bolt will be discontinued comes at a time when the company is pushing towards a fully electric fleet by 2035. So GM is now turning some of its popular trucks into electric vehicles and launching other electric models later this year, including the Chevy Blazer EV and the Chevy Equinox EV. GM's Orion Michigan assembly plant is set to open up next year, which is going to triple local jobs and help build 600,000 electric trucks per year. So first off, RIP the Chevy Bolt. Mm. Um, You know, anytime that you have an issue with batteries catching fire, it's definitely scary. I know living in New York City, there's a big push right now to eliminate the rechargeable uh, lithium batteries in e-bikes and e-scooters being charged inside apartment buildings because a lot of apartments have caught fire. And I say a lot, I forget the exact number, but it's it's more than you would expect in a given year. Yeah. Um, have caught fire due to these unlicensed batteries. That would not be the case with the Bolt. You know, to, to mass produce a vehicle for the country, you need to have the right certification. So it's not like it was an unlicensed second party or third-party battery that's being the problem here. Yeah. But the battery itself was one of the issues with the Bolt. Uh, that being said, it's definitely sad that something that was pitched as the most affordable EV is going to be off the market. Something that is a smaller EV is going to be off the market. Because for me, I know right now I don't have a car. I don't need one. I take my bike everywhere. I take public transit everywhere. When I am ready to get my next car, I want to make sure that it's electric. I want to make sure that I'm not creating emissions every single time I, jar- I drive. And hopefully by the time I'm getting a car, I will have way less emissions coming from charging it because we'll have more renewables in the grid. Yeah. That being said, I don't want it to be a truck because I don't need a truck for my lifestyle. And I don't want this huge car that's going to take up you know, way too much space for me to be comfortable on the highway when I can get a smaller vehicle. So anytime you see one of these, you know, going under, I get it. It seems like it's the right call based on the issues the bolts had in recent years. Yeah. But I hope that the, the push isn't, Hey, let's just make the biggest, baddest electric trucks. (laughs) Yeah. Cause we, we do need these smaller ones. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We definitely need some, some subcompacts for sure. Some SUVs, uh, and some sedans, but, um, I think having, 
two recalls and like the car's blowing up and stuff, probably a good idea to just shut shut the whole thing down. Yeah. Um, it's probably not working out. Um, but yeah, this this does kind of suck because you're you're taking what is definitely one of the cheaper EVs um, completely off the market for people who are in the sedan or SUV market. So it's it's unfortunate. Yeah, and, and the good news is there are so many auto manufacturers who have a similar or better or slightly worse goal that GM has of all electric by 2035. Yeah. So it's not like the bolt being taken off the market is going to mean there's no sedans. Yeah, true. It's just going to mean that there's one less model. And for that, I think it's a little bit of a bummer, especially because this one's in production right now. Yeah. So once again, RIP the Chevy bolt, um, maybe gone too late based on the the models that were recalled and the batteries that were catching fire, but maybe gone too soon in that it's one less sedan on the road. One less sedan. Yeah. RIP Chevy Bolt. Miss you. (laughs) Um, But still inferior to our sponsor of the show, Nissan Leaf. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you if you understand that joke. It's from 2012. All right, here we go. Our last quick hit of the week is by Hannah Devlin, who writes, Air pollution spikes linked to irregular heartbeats. Study finds for The Guardian. This study is based on research from nearly 200,000 hospital admissions in China, and it found a significant increase in the risk of cardiac arrhythmias as air pollution spikes. Those arrhythmias can increase the risk of heart disease and sudden cardiac deaths. Dr. Renjie Chen of Fudan University in Shanghai said that the increased risks occurred during the first several hours after exposure, but could persist for 24 hours. A study last year found that there was a link between fine particulate air pollution and cardiac arrhythmias in otherwise healthy teenagers. So this is another link between pollution and irregular heartbeats. Air pollution in China is also well above the World Health Organization's guidelines for air quality. So the researchers analyzed six air pollutants near the 322 Chinese cities in this study, and they found that nitrogen dioxide had the strongest associations with all four types of cardiac arrhythmias. The exact impact isn't clear according to this article, but there is some evidence that NO2, which is nitrogen dioxide, causes oxidative stress and inflammation, which impact the heart's electrical activity. A previous study found that on high pollution days in England, hundreds more people are rushed into hospital for emergency care after suffering cardiac arrests, strokes, and asthma attacks. In 2020, the British Heart Foundation estimated more than 160,000 people could die in the coming decade from strokes and heart attacks linked to air pollution. This article also cites research that shows particulate air pollution is driving up rates of lung cancer, And the way that the author says this happens is by awakening these dormant mutations that trigger the growth of tumors. So it's not just the heart that's impacted by air pollution. Something we've spoken about before is how air pollution impacts both childhood and adult asthma rates. Yes. And what we're seeing that is people who live close to highways, you know, they're exposed to a lot more tailpipe emissions. People who live close to power plants, they are exposed to a lot more carbon emissions. Um, people who live close to windmills, they're exposed to a lot more wind emissions. No, I'm kidding. That was a, a a bad joke about people who say windmills cause cancer. Full dad um, joke. Love it. Yeah. But on, on a serious note, people who are impacted the most are those people who live closer to your highways, your power plants, all of those areas that have 
smog that have more particulate matter in the air. And that's where this becomes a really serious environmental justice conversation because those neighborhoods, those homes, those apartments, they're usually cheaper. Yeah. So lower income people are going to be moving in there. And typically what we've seen is that in cities, for example, people of color, lower income people, they tend to have higher rates of cardiovascular uh, issues because of where they have traditionally been living. You know, they're, they're basically, they're not redlined anymore, but the impacts of redlining are still felt today where they're pushed towards these neighborhoods that are cheaper, that are more affordable, that are way more polluted in the air. Yeah, a hundred percent. And like, it's important to remember too, how much heat comes into play too here because Mm -hmm. heat and just like stagnant air increases the amount of ozone pollution and particulate pollution. So, I mean, you think about these cities like LA, which already have such a huge smog problem. And then you think about how susceptible they are to, to heat risk mm-hmm. over the next, you know, decade or two. So, I mean, it's a, it's a compounding issue when you're talking about heat and also air pollution, uh, in, in places that are already, you know, on the rise in terms of air pollution, like even Utah. It's definitely something that I am glad to see reports like this come out because it's really important that this is being researched because without research, without awareness, nothing can get acted upon. Mm-hmm. But it sucks so much to to read this and know like, you know, this is a point that I'm really trying to make a lot this year. It's important for me to remember. It's important for listeners to remember. These people we're reading about are, are real people. You know, it's it's easy to read 160,000 people could die in the coming decade from strokes and heart attacks linked to air pollution and think, wow, that's terrible. 160,000 people. That's so much. Like, that's true. Yeah. That's 100% true. You have every right to feel that way. But I'm trying to do a better job of myself thinking about that's not a number, right? Those are real people. Yeah. Every one of those 160,000 people has friends, has families. Those are millions of lives that are impacted just by people dying in the next decade of, of air pollution impacts, essentially. So yeah, it's daunting. It sucks to read this, but seriously, Glad that this article is is out. Glad that the research is being improved upon because, you know, people have been studying how air pollution impacts cardiovascular systems for years. So anytime there's a new finding, you know, it's not happy news per se, but it's good that we have new findings because every single development is an important one. I was going to say it's important news nonetheless, you know, like it's, it's stuff that should be getting out and should be being pushed to the top of the docket. Um, and yeah, it, it's you're so right when you say you have to think about every number in that 160,000. Yeah. Like I said, heat is only going to make this thing worse. So you can only imagine how much damage it'll do. So if you're listening and it's your first time, this is how important climate change is. This is how important getting on top of it is and actually voting people into office that actually will do something. Yeah. And, and, you know, hopefully that something is decarbonization because one of the the best ways to reduce air pollution, it's going to be not burning fossil fuels. Yeah. All right. That will do it for today's episode of TPT. 
if you are new here, like Nick just mentioned, we do try to end the show on a happier note. So apologies. That was a little bit somber at the end. Good news is we'll be back next Friday for another episode. But until then, please go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can. Send it to a friend if you feel so inclined and follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. Nick Chanusa produces our show and makes all the music you hear throughout. Nick, where can people keep up with your music? You can keep up with me at soundcloud.com slash Cape, And that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out, y'all. Our logo was made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here next Friday. Peace. Peace.